0: we've been asking the same question every sunday morning in this series and it is if jesus visited peninsula what would he have to say to us now i know most of you are wondering where is it's the last sunday of january so where's the state of the church message right please tell me somebody was thinking that <laughs> okay never mind <laughs> it's usually state of the church sunday today but this year It just feels like, you know, this whole series of State of the Church. You know, Jesus is speaking directly to us, so we're going to keep going through this series this year because the State of the Church is straight from the lips of Him this year. So we are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're walking our way through these letters that Jesus um, um, has written to these seven churches in western Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. And Until this morning, we've been in two port cities, Along the way, you having trouble? There we go. Ephesus and Smyrna. We go this morning to the farthest one up in the north uh, in Pergamum. Ephesus asked the question, how is your love for Jesus? At Smyrna, Jesus says, am I enough? Is is Jesus enough? This morning we arrive in Pergamum, modern-day Bergama. I'm not telling you the question yet. You have to pay attention. Chicago is what? It's the Windy City. Paris, the City of Lights. Las Vegas, Sin City. From what Jesus says in this letter to the church at Pergamum, the Christians there may well have described Pergamum as Satan's city. Chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell." Where Satan's throne is. In the same verse, he refers to Pergamum as where Satan dwells. Pergamum was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It had a population of about 190,000 people, which is a large city back then. It's about 15 miles inland from the coast. Pergamum and Smyrna from last week and Ephesus from the week before that were really three cities that were the largest and most influential in the area, and they were always vying for attention to be the greatest city in that area and region of the world. But it was a capital city in the Roman province of Asia because Pergamum kind of won. It retained that honor well into the second century, but it didn't have a port which made it very difficult for it to maintain that high status. It didn't have the trade and the economics that the other cities had. So it was famous for something else. It was famous for its celebration of religion. Pergamum is the center of worship for at least four of the most important deities of the time. If you visited Pergamum, if you've ever been there, it is dominated by this large hill, about a thousand foot hill, right at, at the Acropolis of Pergamum. And it, on top of that hill stood temple after temple after temple. This is a, this is a, I, 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 there's no signal back here, and so I, it would be just in this portion would be kind of nice to see what's going on. There it is. Speak and the magic happens. Um, this is a recreation of the Acropolis. Can you go back to the previous picture? I can explain it maybe a little bit. Oh, these are in a different... Is that for, that's forward, isn't it? You've seen that one already? What's the one before that? There you go. You, this is where we're down in the city, and then this is the hill of Pergamum. And you can see the ruins on the top. Barely, you see that theater up there. Go to the next one. I wasn't going to be a tour guide. There's that theater from the top looking down over the modern city of Bergamo. now go to the next one and this is a recreation I thought this was kind of interesting a, a drawing of what that hill would have looked like back in the first century And I don't know where we are in my notes and I don't know where we are let's might as well look at the next picture oh okay they read they on the top of this hill was the altar to Zeus which they thought maybe was Satan's throne is what they called it like in Revelation it has been rebuilt in the um, Pergamon Museum in Berlin so I've just added another place to the bucket list. So you can go see it. Oh, it left. It can come back. <laughs> I want to go there and see this thing. It's huge. This is, this is what they found on top of, of that Acropolis in, um, in in Pergamum. I don't know how the Germans got it, um, but they did. That's kind of the way archaeology runs these days. You can find... You go to the British Museum, and it's the Brits, too. You know, they got, they got that that wonderful... You know, all that stuff in the British Museum, too. So, anywho, let's maybe get back to the text. The next picture will get us back to the text. One of the... I don't know, where are we? They worshipped Athena. They also were Dionysus, you know, the of wine, god of wine. And, but the most unique uh, temple there on the top of the Acropolis was to Asclepius who was uh, the god of healing. He was the son of of Zeus, was supposed to be, you know, the first uh, doctor. And so these serpents, they had a temple there, and you would spend the night in this temple and you'd walk through it, and if you made it through and just touched a snake, you would get healed. Of course, the snake could also, you know, bite you and you wouldn't get healed, so there was that. Um, But this Asclepios is often called a savior. In, in Greek mythology, and thought to be the, really the first physician. So hence the symbol of the snake wrapped around the stick becomes our symbol for medicine in the modern era. So you add all of this, you got all of these temples up there, you've got this great religious zeal, and Pergamum also became the center for the imperial cult to worship Caesar. Three years, remember last week Smyrna got to build a temple to Tiberius. Well, three years earlier... Pergamum got the bigger honor of getting to build one for Augustus, for Caesar Augustus. And so it it built this temple in his honor. And perhaps more than any of the other six cities in Revelation, this city in Pergamum was devoted to to the worship of Caesar. They really felt tied in to Rome. And so what does Jesus say about the church in Pergamum? In Revelation 2.13, he says this, I know where you dwell. Seems like Jesus is saying that, you know, I I know all of this evil surrounds you, but I know where you live. And in a particularly powerful and concentrated way, this evil is there, but I know it. To these believers immersed in in a clearly satanic atmosphere, there's idolatry and evil. Jesus says, what? What? I know where you live. To them struggling by grace to remain faithful to the Savior in the midst of this pagan society, He says, I know where you dwell. To believers who must have felt somewhat abandoned and alone in enemy territory where Satan's throne is, He says, I know where you dwell. Revelation 2 opened, we learned that, that Jesus knows these churches. Why? Because he's walking among their lampstands. He knows them. And in this letter, he says Not only do I know the work of the church, like Ephesus, not only do I know the suffering they endure, like in Smyrna, but I know your environment. I know what it's like, to, I know where, where you live. And Jesus is fully aware of the pagan surroundings and the pressures they faced. He knew how hard it was to be a Christian in Pergamum. He knew the temptation to abandon him and follow after some other god. He knew what they faced on a daily basis. And he knew every intimate detail of their lives. And guess what? Jesus knows where you live too. He knows where you dwell. He knows the temptations you face. He knows the pressures you feel. He knows the trials you're going through. He knows the fear that perhaps you've been misplaced or marginalized or somehow you're just lost in the shuffle of humanity. Take comfort in the opening phrase Jesus knows where you dwell. You're not abandoned, you're not ignored. Your life, your ministry are as important here as any life and ministry anywhere of any Christian in any city or country. And you may feel like you live in modern Pergamum, devoted to idolatry and immorality, surrounded by people who ridicule the Savior we love. But know this, Jesus has put you strategically in this place as his witnesses, to hold up his name and to display his glory. He knows exactly where we live. And he knows exactly what it's like to live for him in this place. So what are we supposed to learn from this? We haven't even got to the text yet, right? What do we learn? I've uncovered five letters. How about if I've uncovered five lessons that we can learn from this one letter? But let's read the whole letter uh, uh, together I'll read it, you listen, you follow along. Revelation 2, verse 12. It says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you, may re- yet you, may, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even, not even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's a bit to talk about there, isn't there? But there are five lessons that I want us to learn. Lesson number one, no church can live on its past. No church can live on its past. The church at Pergamum, they had a great heritage. During the days of intense persecution that they'd been through, apparently there was this man from the church named Antipas who paid the ultimate price for his faith. Verse 13, the last half. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We really don't know anything more about Antipas than that. Tradition says he was burned alive inside a hollow bronze bull. We don't know. But the text does say this. One translation says he was killed among you. Maybe the church had to witness his death. Maybe it was so close that they saw it happen. If so, I think they got a pretty good excuse to be afraid of what was coming down the road for them. But they didn't do it. What matters is Jesus knows the name of Antipas. He knows he wouldn't give in to the pressure. And this church withstood the pressure to be afraid. But a church with a solid past might assume that it's meeting the challenges of present day life, and it's not the case. Was the Church of Pergamon guilty of honoring Antipas and yet neglecting to follow really what he believed? Yeah, we should honor those who come before. But sometimes you have to wonder, where are today's heroes? Who are the Luthers today? Who are the Spurgeons today? Where are the modern soldiers for the cross today? You can't just live on your past. You've got to press forward. Lesson number two, no church can live on courage alone. Don't miss the wonderful words he uses, verse 13, the first part. I know where you live, I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. This place that's the hub of social, political, Theological truth and scholarly interests. That's where they lived. And in the midst of that, they remained true. We didn't talk about the library that's in Pergamum. It had 200,000 volumes, 200,000 books, which at first I'm like, oh, what's 200,000 books? That's a big library. Don't forget, there's no printing press, folks. They are all handwritten. To amass a, and a library of 200,000 books is, a, is impressive. They said before the turn of the century, Antony had, had given that library to Cleopatra because Julius Caesar had kind of damaged it in his wars. But they're not really sure about that. And they said after Antony died, they brought some of the books back. But this, this is a place that had a huge library. So what happens? Scholars come from all over the world to study there. They got this temple to Asclepius. So what happens? All the people who are sick come to Pergamum. They want to get held, get healed. And so you've got this mix of people. It's setting the stage with with the Caesar worship, with the worship of Zeus and his throne and the altar and this library and this healing power. And it's this really a diabolical excuse that, that, that lives there and resides in Pergamum that really influences the entire region. And through some combination of idol worship and sensual pleasure... Satan holds sway in Pergamum. It's a region covered, really, with a dark cloud of evil. I think Satan still has thrones today. There are places and areas where Satan has held sway for generations. Ask missionaries, they'll tell you. There's places where they try to minister that it's just met with satanic opposition. But I don't think that's just some remote tribal thing. We are more likely to find the throne of Satan today in places of cultural influence, perhaps in the great universities, in the seats of political power, in the halls of commerce, on the great religious centers where they pray multiple times a day but never mention the name of Jesus. So it's all to the credit of the church at Pergamon that despite this prevailing intellectualism and this, this this power for healing and the libraries and the worship, that there in the midst of this paganism, they had established a foothold. There was a church in Pergamum. That's actually pretty amazing. And it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Pergamon. It's not easy today to be a Christian in the great cities of Europe, or in the great universities of America, or in most parts of the Muslim world. If there's not outright opposition, there's this subtle and unrelenting pressure, just keep quiet. Cut the hard edges off your faith. Just don't speak openly about this Jesus. Because a great battle rages between the God of this world and the God of the Bible. And in that battle, the believers in Pergamum had not yielded ground. They stayed firm. So what was their great failing? You cannot live on courage alone. Number three, no church can live without, no church can live with error in its midst. That leads us, what what was the problem? No church can live with error in its midst. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We're going to get to Balaam and Balak and all that in a minute. Just listen to those five words. There are some among you. There's the crux of the problem. We see in five words the weakness of this otherwise brave congregation. And you have to admit it's a little bit ironic. They're devoted to the truth of who Jesus is and the essentials of the message. They were so devoted to him, they were willing to die. They watched Antipas die. But they fudged when it came to dealing with those within the church who compromised the sexual ethics of the church of that gospel. It's almost as if they said, I will personally never back down even if I die. But on the other hand, maybe we need to be a little less rigid. We could be a little more tolerant when it comes to those who draw a different conclusion about the practical implications of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. See, if the Ephesian church was guilty of elevating truth above love, The church at Pergamon had elevated love above truth. They allowed false teachers to teach in the church. Now, the details of what they taught really isn't all that clear. It's metaphorically referred to as the teaching of Balaam. Verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have also, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've come across these Nicolaitans before in the church to Ephesus. They wouldn't let them anywhere near them. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. They wouldn't tolerate it. Ah, different story in Pergamum. Up north, you know, they welcomed them into the fellowship. They let them teach in the church. Jesus describes them as holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to say, well, what's all this going on? Well, the story of Balaam and Balak's in Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. We were just there not too long ago, as I recall. I can't recall in what context. That's more to my age and my lack of intellectual prowess than anything else. But we were there. In that chapter, in Numbers 22, Balak... He's the king of Moab. The Israelites are about to come through, go enter the land, but Balak doesn't like it, so he hires Balaam from, from someplace else to say, "Come curse the people of Israelite of the Israel." And every time he tries to, God changes the blessing and becomes uh, changes the curse, and it becomes a blessing, so he never can do it. But he wants his money, so on the way out of town, he says, "You know what? You really should do. What you really should do was take your beautiful women and entice the men of Israel." And once you do that, then they'll marry them. Once you get married to them, then you can bring them into your feasts. You can do all this kind of stuff. And then you know what's going to happen? Once they compromise, God will judge them. He'll curse them. I don't have to do that. And that's exactly what happened, and it worked. And so what Balaam was to the children of Israel in the Old Testament bringing really the condemnation of God, the Nicolaitans were to the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so Balaam taught Balak to set a trap for the sons of Israel. And they ended up doing what? Eating meat offered to idols. They went to their sacred feasts. They ate the meat, that's food that had been offered to an idol, and they committed sexual immorality. Now, the fault of the church in Pergamum was not so much that they followed that teaching as what? What's he condemn them for? He condemns them for allowing that to be taught in the church. They let teachers teach this. And that really bothered Jesus. Maybe the Nicolaitans were teaching that forgiveness of sin and their newfound freedom in Christ, they were just libertines. You can do whatever you want to. You'll all be forgiven. Don't worry about it. Much of the church today says, live and let live. Is it really necessary that the faithful in Pergamum confront these issues? I mean, why should we rock the boat? Life's hard enough. It's hard enough to live here, let alone keep these morals so carefully. I mean, doesn't Jesus call us to love and and tolerance? Can't we just mind our own business? Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them and with the sword of my mouth. You cannot live with error in your midst. Which leads us to lesson number four. No church can live in a divided state forever. Now, there's nothing really to indicate in the text that they had adopted hook, line, and sinker, all of this stuff that these people were teaching It certainly wasn't out of fear that they adopted it. But they figured that such ethical teaching and such theological deviations were not that important. They lived in Satan's throne area, so let's just stick with the big stuff. They were misguided. They gave these false teachers a place to teach and to influence people. And sometimes peace and love comes at too high a price. Which we discover in verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, Jesus Christ takes personal offense when we allow false teachers to teach in his church. And he says, I'm going to come to you personally. I'm going to fight against this. Which raises the question, who's supposed to do the repenting? It's a single verb. It's repent. It's it's one person. It's not all of you repent. It's not plural. It's repent, therefore. Well, the false teachers should repent, of course. That's a given. But the call here as a singular word seems to be that the Lord is calling the messenger, the one who brings this letter, who seems to be the leader of the church, to repentance. He should repent for not dealing with the members of his congregation that hold to the teaching of balaam that let the teaching of the nicolaitans into the place it's the leader seems to be It's singular pastor repent he says elders repent you guys got to decide what you want to be i could easily imagine the church of pergamum saying we desire to be known as a church where everybody's welcome And everybody's opinion is honored, which sounds really good and fun and nice, but is it biblical? No. And Jesus warns that if the church doesn't take strong action, he will do it himself. And the action Jesus takes in judgment is always harder than the one we would take. You don't box with God. Your arms are too short. (laughs) Kick out the false teachers, he says. Stop with the moral compromise. If they don't get it right with God, kick them out of the church. Get them off the elder board. Get them off the staff. Get them off the Sunday school teaching team. Unless you want to fight with Jesus, you've got to do this. That's what verse 12 means when it says these words come from who? From him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He's unswerving in his judgment. Reminds us of Hebrews 4:12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. He sees through the religiosity of our lives and gets to the core of who we are. And if you allow these false teachers to remain in the church. Not only do you corrupt the church, but you also allow these false teachers to think, you know, what we're doing is right, but they're on the precipice of heaven and hell, and they're ready to face the sword of the judgment of God, and no church can live in that state forever, repent or else, change or else. Fifth lesson, no church can live without a word of hope. He doesn't leave us right in this difficult situation because there's no way around the fact that peace and harmony might suffer if we're committed to living out the clear implications of the gospel. And it's a price we need to be willing to pay. So how do we get there? This message from the Savior ends with with some wonderful promises to those who overcome, to those who do what he says to do. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Interesting. Pagans offered hidden mysteries back in the day. Jesus offers something quite different. He says, hidden manna. What does that mean? Well, manna is what? It's the heavenly bread that that the Israelites ate for 40 years in the the wilderness, Exodus 16. The hidden manna is perhaps a reference to, to the Hebrew tradition That records that a pot of manna was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, if you recall. They kept some of it there so they'd never forget. Well, then, you know, according to 2 Maccabees, when, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed in 586, either Jeremiah or some angel grabbed the Ark of the Covenant, took it, some say to Mount Nebo, some say to Mount Sinai. Um, and and hid this, and the tradition was then when the Messiah comes, they're going to open the ark, they're going to take out the manna, and we're going to feast on the manna uh, from of old. But in the New Testament, what's the manna, or who's the manna? The bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. And the promise here seems to be that those who overcome will feast forever on the person of Christ, which is a great thought. But what does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus and only Jesus will be the nutrition of our body and our soul for all eternity. It means we will experience with Jesus depths of intimacy that you cannot conceive of today. It means we'll never grow tired of seeing His splendor. We'll never get bored with displays of His grace. It means that Jesus will be for us this endless, self-replenishing spring of refreshing water. It means that because of Jesus, we will experience that, that odd sensation, that glorious sensation of never lacking anything, but never really being full either. And what about this white stone? White stones were often used as, as tokens for membership or tickets to get into something. If that's the background, the white stone might be a symbol for, for our, our, our believers as a believer, our, our entrance into the kingdom, into the feast of Revelation 19. The white might portray the righteousness of those granted the righteousness of Christ to get in. What I found more intriguing was this. What does this mean when it says a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it? You got this white stone, and there's na- name is put on it that only you know. What's that all about? Well, who gets a new name? Isaiah 62, 2 says this: the nation shall see, shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, talking of Messiah. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. I think here in Revelation 2, Jesus applies this concept not just to the Messiah. Now He, he applies it to individuals within the church. And this unique name that each believer apparently are given by the Savior. It points to the fact, I think, that, that we're new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Now everything's new. We've got this new identity. Everything is made new in Christ. The past is forgiven and long forgotten, and we will get for ourselves a name suitable for the new heavens and the new earth, a place without any evil or error. But there's more to it than just the newness of this name. It's a name no one knows except for the individual who receives it. Wow, that seems to point to this intimate, intensely personal nature of our life with God. Could it be that Jesus is highlighting the depths of his intimacy, the depths of his acceptance of us, that we will enjoy in the secret recesses of our soul for all eternity? There's an identity you have in God. It's reflected in a new name. That name transcends all the shame and all the regret attached to your name today. All the disappointment that's wrapped up in who you are now is gone. You got a new name. It's fresh. It's clean. Paul said, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Peter echoes that. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And do you see what Jesus is doing here in this letter? What makes us vulnerable to compromise in our life? What makes us vulnerable to, to allowing some things in the church that we maybe we don't want into the church if we really thought about it? I think one reason we tolerate sin is because we think we're missing out on something we're missing out on something in life. If we just had a little bit more money, a little more prestige, a little uh, more sexual experiences, then we would really achieve what we deeply desire. And Jesus says, what? I'm going to give you what you desire, a a new identity. That's your reward. If you trust me, I am the one who will supply what you need. I will be your intimate companion. I will be the one that you can share with in, in your deepest longings. That's an amazing promise. And he makes it to those who resist the teaching that says, just pursue the good life. That's what Christianity is all about. Just go with the flow. Don't stand up for truth. So we come to the end of this short letter. It's a solemn message. I did not enjoy this letter. I don't know about you. Maybe give it another two or three days and I might figure it out but we need to take these words seriously. It isn't enough to just be orthodox in our theology. It's not even enough to have the courage to face opposition from the community. In Ephesus, he asked, how is your love for Jesus? In Smyrna, is Jesus enough? What question does he ask the church at Pergamum? I think the question cuts deep and it is this, what do you tolerate? What do you put up with in your church? Do we tolerate the people who threaten the purity of the testimony of our church in the world? Are we willing to compromise our intimacy with Jesus to achieve something only He says He can supply? This is tough. I'm not sure I've come to the end of my wrestling with this letter. I mean, how do we love sinners and be open to sharing the gospel with them and yet not condone what they're doing, what they're teaching? How do we not let them lead us to compromise? The world's answer is you just let them do whatever they want and we'll all just get along. But the message to the church, if we hear it, is the message to a church as a lighthouse in darkness, in a hurting world. We cannot help sinners by saying that sin isn't sinful. Christ came to save sinners, but if we no longer believe in sin, we have nothing to offer. Where sin is winked at or renamed, or where the church turns a blind eye to moral compromise within its midst, To precisely that extent, the church commits spiritual suicide. It can happen to any evangelical church. Truth never excuses sin. This is the message to the church at Pergamum. This is his message to us. May we stand strong for the gospel. May we stand with the courage of these people in an age of moral compromise. If they call us narrow-minded, so be it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's be as narrow as God's truth is narrow and as broad as God's grace is broad and never stop asking, what do we tolerate? What do we tolerate? because we have an identity in God reflected in a new name that transcends whatever shame or regret or disappointment is wrapped around who we are now. So let's stick with Him. Let's overcome that that might be ours. Let's pray. Father, Your word sometimes isn't what we want to hear, but it is always what we need to hear. And so I pray that you would help us to to really think about this letter this week. That it wouldn't be just one and done. That we wouldn't just move on. But we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says. That your Spirit might be active and, and alive in our lives. That we might reflect the truth of your word in how we live and what we allow taught here and who we allow to teach here. Give us the courage to stand up for you in the midst of Satan's throne. In Jesus' name, amen.